Welcome to Science of the Noosphere. This series investigates the scientific foundations of the noosphere, the sphere of thought enveloping the Earth. This series is the project of Human Energy, a scientific and educational organization that conducts research into the nature, history, and future of the noosphere. Human Energy conducts this research with the understanding that knowledge of the noosphere helps generate a third story, a new story that points the development of humanity and Earth in a positive direction. Well, hello, Anne Klim, a.k.a. Risker. I am so happy to be talking to you about Wikipedia. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, Wikipedia is just the shining example of a form of social organization which has arisen in the Internet, which is often called self-organizing, and, and we'll discuss exactly what that um uh, what that means, but it's definitely a distributed form of governance, uh, resulting in something which is a absolutely magnificent. I want to say, first of all, I support it financially, and I encourage everyone listening to do the same. And I used it at least three or four times today, just in my work before this conversation, and I use it every day. So it is awesome, really. It's um uh, to to contemplate it, and um, and so that's why I'm so eager to have this conversation. You are not, as I understand it, high up in any kind of Wikipedia hierarchy, if there is such a thing. Uh, but you are very engaged with it, and tell us your story as to basically who you are as a person, how you became involved in Wikipedia, and your current degree of engagement, because I think that says a lot about Wikipedia. Well. Like like you, um, I started off in on Wikipedia by reading it, uh, and I'm a little bit of a a grammar nut, and so I would read articles and there'd be grammar or spelling mistakes in them, and they would bother me. So one day I just thought maybe I would actually click that edit button and see what happened if. I tried to fix a mistake, and it worked, and then I saved it, and all of a sudden it dawned on me that I had just taken a step that had changed the internet. I had changed this for everybody else who read the article after me, and that felt very powerful, and I enjoyed that feeling, and I continued doing that as an unregistered user for a little while. And then one day I hit an article where I had to be a registered user to edit it, so I created an account. I'd been sort of reading around the Wikipedia site and, and learning things like that. And then I moved on, and I created my account and started participating more fully, had more opportunities to do things. Uh, went on to become an administrator, went on to become uh, a member of one of the, the major dispute resolution body on English Wikipedia, which is called the Arbitration Committee, uh, picked up some extra user rights along the way, and uh, have just kept going. Uh, and since then, I've worked more and more with what we call our meta level uh, or our global level, uh, where I take on roles on various committees that work across the multiple Wikipedia and Wikimedia sites. We have over 800 sites and we have 
uh, sites in hundreds of languages. So having that opportunity has mean, meant an awful lot to me. Well, what is, um, and this is entirely voluntary, uh, Anne? Entirely voluntary. And, um, uh, and what, tell us more about yourself as a person. What do you do professionally or, or uh, just a little bit more about you as a person, please? Well, uh, I'm retired now, but uh, before that, I worked in healthcare administration. I'm from Canada. I live near Toronto. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a family and uh, I do Wikipedia instead of doing things like watching television or stuff like that. You know, this is how I use my volunteer time. My husband jokingly says that it's a certainly a much healthier midlife crisis than, you know, buying a red Ferrari or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What we do with our spare time. Um, so how much of the Wikipedia workforce is like that? I mean, um, uh, as opposed to a paid staff? Almost all of it. Uh, on a weekly basis, I believe we have over 30,000 volunteers editing some part of one or one or more sites. Uh, the Wikimedia Foundation has roughly 500 staff. Uh, and all of the, of all of the employees on all of, the, for all of the support areas, uh, we have several chapters in different countries and some of them have employees. I would say there's probably less than a thousand people who are paid to work on the system, uh, at least, you know, they're mainly doing development, you know, software development or uh, user support um, or administrative backgrounds work, but they're not actually editing the project with those accounts. Um, when we say that, you know, we mean that, you know, they'll still communicate use, using their official Wikimedia or whatever account to communicate, but they will not actually be editing articles with those accounts. Right. So there is a small paid staff, proportionally, it's quite small, very small, you know, but uh, you made it sound like it might be a one to 30 ratio of volunteer work versus paid, paid work. Is that a rough? Oh, ballpark? easily, easily, easily. You know, when I say 30,000, those, that's the number of people who are doing five or more edits a month. Uh, there's an awful lot more people who are editing less frequently or are not registered users and who edit frequently. Okay, so there's a, there's a motivational part of this and a governance part of this. So let's begin with motivation. Why is it so meaningful? Uh, because um, that makes this so worthwhile. It's not financial capital, it's something else, but uh, but it's really sustaining for some people, as such as yourself. So what is it that that um, that gives it such um, a meaning for you, that keeps you doing it? I, I think the the knowledge that we do have do make a difference uh, in sharing information across the world is very important to a lot of people. For some people it's important to share a very limited section of information. Uh, you know, they may focus completely on trains or they may focus on politicians or they may focus on, you know, some other aspect. Um, for some people, it's, you know, being able to share information about their native country or their local region. Um, and I have sometimes worked with an editor who 
writes extensively about uh, the history of early Quebec, for example, and the families that were involved, the towns that existed at the time, and and how it has impacted Quebec as as it has developed over the years. Uh, and I've worked with people who uh, are starting to bring out more information about African countries and figuring out how to fit that information in to an English Wikipedia that is primarily written by Westerners. So we want to you know, make sure that we integrate that information. So I, I, I think of this as a, a very democratic form of scholarship. And let me just say a little bit on scholarship because uh, – I'm a scholar and a, and a scientist, um, and I have a I have a, 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 a reverential attitude towards scholarship. Um, um, this community of people that are just really assiduous about getting the facts right, and and uh, I I attribute almost like a sacredness to to um, knowledge and. And uh, scholarship, but of course, so much of it takes place in universities, uh, inside the proverbial ivory tower, and is therefore very biased in its own way and very restricted, and so on. And and so, Wikipedia, it seems, um, offers an opportunity for people from anywhere, uh, any walk of life, to contribute to scholarly knowledge, like the early history of Quebec. You you don't necessarily have to be a professor to to do that. There's other forms of, is that part of the motivation here? I mean, people that want to talk about trains or, or their nation in Africa or the early history of Quebec is that they're basically eager to function as scholars, no matter what their, no matter what their day job. I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people who enjoy reading and researching and having, uh, having hobbies outside of Wikipedia that then they are able to share on Wikipedia, share that knowledge that they've gained about their various hobbies or their various personal interests. I think that's really important uh, because it, it does have some effect. Uh, you'd also be surprised at how many universities participate in Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. I'm not uh, surprised at that. Literally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there are literally hundreds of professors who uh, create Wikipedia classes and and bring their students and require them to participate on Wikipedia, and they'll often contribute in areas where scholarly expertise is really important. Uh, I will use the example of something uh, that we that we ran into during the uh, last United States election, where some internet meme decided that Benford's law, which is a, a very esoteric mathematical theorem, uh, would show that, you know, the results of the U.S. election were false. And they started editing this article. And I can assure you that 99.98% of Wikipedians don't understand math at that level to be able to edit the article. However, we do have a whole core group of mathematicians, and we just sort of said, come and check this out, figure out whether or not this makes sense. And they, you know, cleaned up the article, made sense of it, and uh, got rid of all of the nonsense from, you know, the internet memes. Yeah, we're going to get to that uh, governance as, the, as, uh, as we're going to spend a long time on governance. Um, um, and I just I wanted to say I have a colleague um, 
who teaches classes just that way. The student projects are to create Wikipedia pages for an organism or or um, or something like that. So um, that's definitely the case. I also wanted to mention, and I've I've forgotten the reference, so bad on me as a scholar. But but uh, what the article said was in the first place, if you're a professor and you're writing something, uh, you never uh, actually reference a Wikipedia article. It's just like it's not good enough. You have to reference an academic article. But what the study showed is that where do they find those academic articles? Wikipedia. And so actually, Wikipedia just has become, as, as in my case, um, uh, just the go-to place for um, uh, for information. And then when you cite something, you cite uh, uh, something that's cited in the Wikipedia article. So it's kind of like a silent source um, for academics. And I think that almost everyone is using Wikipedia in that, uh, in that way. Um, and I wanted to ask uh, how much kind of recognition, status, prestige, recognition within this circle figures as part of the motivation that not only are you contributing to this knowledge, but in some ways you're becoming known for it. That's a very basic human motivation, nothing to be ashamed of, uh, that you are some standing in, in a community. And, and uh, I wonder how does that figure in yourself, let's say, and in others that you that you know within this community? There are many ways to be recognized. Uh, some of it is simply, you know, a little, what we call a wiki love or a wiki note uh, that somebody leaves on the user's talk page uh, where they would leave messages for somebody saying, geez, you did a great job on this article or, you know, I, I've seen your work and here's a cookie. <laughs> Um, and those sorts of things. That's, that's you know, at, at the base level, that's where it starts. Uh, for editors who've worked on more complicated uh, or more uh, complete articles, I mean, a lot of our articles are okay, but they're very basic. And for people who've worked on articles that, you know, have received a certain amount of recognition – their name is directly tied to that article's recognition as well. Uh, and they receive a notice. They are, I mean, like in our hist, in the page history, we actually have a way of saying this article became a good article on this date, this version, and it usually will have the, the username of the person who promoted it, uh, and developed it. Um, and the same thing for what we call our featured articles, the articles that run on the front page of Wikipedia. Um, those are much more complicated. They have to follow very precise uh, requirements. They have to have incredible sourcing. Uh, those, those sources are all double-checked by scholars, quite often by scholars uh, who specialize in that area. And then, you know, all of the images have to meet our certain criteria and so on. And they are formally recognized as the promoter of that feature article. They will receive formal formal recognition of that. And so that is certainly from the content side, that's one way of recognizing. Those are some ways of recognizing people. Other ways of recognizing people are to 
provide them with additional user rights uh, or user permissions. Uh, somebody who has demonstrated some ability in assessing new articles will be given a, a, a particular user permission to be able to continue to do that without being over overseen. Uh, editors who have developed a s- skills in identifying uh, people who run multiple accounts may get a, a special authorizations or special permissions to do that in a more formal and more complex way that involves private information. So there's a ladder to climb. You described that for yourself, that you were able to do more and more and more and get access to more uh, permissions and, and and so on. And so, of course, I could imagine that being very motivating, just like a video game when you want to climb the levels of a, of a uh, video game. Um, is there also some public recognition of that, that, um, that, uh, that you become more widely known or, um, and that may or may not be important to you or anyone else, but I'm just really quite eager, uh, um, my, someone who thinks a lot about social systems and, and, you know, how they work just to know how much that, that you, you're, you, you gain a kind of a reputation for what you, for what you do. There's the private satisfaction of accomplishment and then the public part. And how much of that is, is built to the, into the digital platform so that if you want to praise somebody, give them a cookie, I think you just said, um, that there's a way to do it. You know, that, that, that would have to be built into a digital platform just for someone to say, thank you, um, would have to actually be built in. Otherwise it wouldn't be possible. So more on that, please. Well, definitely it is built in. Um, we actually have two tools. Uh, the first one is that you can, anybody can thank an individual editor for a specific edit they've made. You look at the, you go to the page history and you see the username and it says at the end of it, do you want to thank this person? And you can click yes. And that thanks goes directly to them. So they know that somebody appreciated what they said or what they what they edited in that particular edit. It could be removing vandalism. It could be uh, making a very erudite statement on a talk page or in a discussion. These are all very important things. And it's immediate recognition. Um, as soon as you click that button, they get a notice saying, you have been thanked by so-and-so. How many, how many thanks do you get on an average day? Oh, I'll get a couple a week, maybe. Okay. Depends on how much work I'm doing on English Wikipedia that, that week. Right, right. Um, you know, and, and that is a dependent thing. You know, uh, a lot of the work that I do is either behind the scenes or on one of the other projects that we have. So I may not get as many as some people, but certainly a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of thanks go out. And again, the, the message that gives somebody a cookie you know, uh, we call them wiki love messages, believe it or not, uh, is, is a software link that you just click and you choose which photo you want to use and exactly what thing you want to say to them. And then you just save it to their talk page. It's very easy to do. How many, how many of those do you so, get? A couple, a couple a week? Maybe one, a couple a month. How many do you give? Yeah, how, I, many, how many do you give? I'll thank people probably several times a month. Um, 
you know, it's very, very indi- individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. How, how social is it? And I hope you <laughs> you can see how interested I am in, in, in this, uh, um, that, uh, you know, in some sense, it seems like it's a solitary activity. You're there, you know, at your, at your computer, but, uh, how many social interactions are there of any kind uh, on a on a given day? Are you actually interacting with another person in a way that's fulfilling the way we do when we say hi to a friend or just we're with someone or so on? Uh, you know, so uh, how many how many people do you actually interact with on a on a given day? So that this so that this could actually become a a fairly rich social life. It's definitely very a very significant aspect for a lot of people. I can tell you right now that I can personally think of at least 20 couples who have gotten married who met on Wikipedia. So clearly, you know, there is a social element. Uh, many, many friendships have developed over the years. Um, and it it depends on the level that the individual wants to have that social interaction as well. Uh, whether they want to limit it to just talking about articles and stuff like that, whether they want to include some external friendships and so on, whether, you know, quite often we'll, we'll go offline with somebody that we know or whose, whose work we've enjoyed and say, Hey, how are you? You know, uh, and a lot of background work is done offline where it's not necessarily visible uh, and those committees become very close and the people on those committees tend to get very close. We also have external uh, in-person meetings for a lot of things or online meetings uh, for various things. Uh, everything had to go online due to the pandemic, but it certainly has reminded us of how easy it is for us to just get together and, and have these conversations with each other. Um, but we have regular in-person sessions together, whether they're local, you know, Wikimedia in New York City, whether they're regional, the uh, Central and Eastern Europe group uh, has an annual conference, or whether they're global, uh, our annual Wikimania events, conferences, which usually attract about a thousand people from around the world. Uh, they're all very useful and, and they help to build the connections that are used for continuing to develop the projects. You know, uh, having gone to several of the Wikimanias, I've been able to develop friendships and working relationships with people from all over the globe. You know, I have friends in Africa, and so and it, it is a fantastic portal. And it's all all enveloped by an ethos of dedication to knowledge. Basically, I mean, the whole the whole cause of it is something which is very prosocial and 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 intellectual, and so on. So that you're really working on something that's that's has real value and that everyone shares that value. And so we're going to get to the Austrian courtesan principles in, in a minute. But, you know, strong sense of identity and purpose is the first thing that's needed for any group to function well is a strong sense of identity and purpose. And here's something that anyone can join anywhere in the world, any culture, any level of expertise, and then they are welcomed into that world. And so, and so I think that that is 
you know, really very, very interesting. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face, especially as we are spreading our wings and making a point of, of trying to develop uh, editing groups in areas outside of the Western world is that there are a lot of areas where it is financially or socially very costly for people to participate in these things. Uh, they have to have an internet connection. They have to have the uh, hardware to actually connect to the internet and to participate. They have to have access to some information sources. And that can be very, very expensive in some parts of the world. And so that's one of the areas where we're looking at trying to figure out how we can support people to participate from those areas. We've got lots of ways now for people to make use of our knowledge in those areas. We have offline Wikipedias and, you know, special software uh, that can be built off of Raspberry Pi, which is an incredibly inexpensive uh, piece of technology. Uh, what is that? that is a little bit more? I'm unfamiliar with that, Anne. Uh, what is that? Uh, it's called a Raspberry Pi. It's, it's a kind of, uh, well, it's like a PC, except it's incredibly inexpensive, has very limited capacity, uh, and it can be used to hold, hold or store a large amount of information. So quite often what we'll do is we'll have an offline Wikipedia built into those Raspberry Pis. Uh, and it, Pi is spelled P-I. Uh, you could probably find out more about it in the Wikipedia article about <laughs> Raspberry Pi. That's where I'll go. It makes, makes our information more usable, but we also need to have those people contributing so that we can work again work against the inherent biases of the western worldview or the north you know american continental word worldview or the european worldview uh a lot of the things that we mess up are not because we intended to mess it up it's because we simply don't have enough knowledge uh, to be able to identify things. Uh, for example, understanding what the best reference sources are amongst Nigerian media is not something that somebody in New York City is going to know unless they came from Nigeria. Yeah, there's, a, um, there's an acronym, and I wonder if you've encountered it. Uh, uh, white, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. Uh, that's weird. Weird, white, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. Have you encountered that acronym? I haven't, but I fully understand what it means. Yeah. So, uh, and so it's a huge challenge to uh, basically to first recognize how peculiar, um, weird cultures are. Uh, and yet, of course, almost everything that we call scholarly or technological or, or, or it comes from those weird cultures. And so the, the need to appreciate non-weird societies and to include them in everything, including an enterprise like Wikipedia, is like, first and foremost, that's what you got to do once you, once you appreciate how peculiar we are. So, so uh, and Joseph Henrik is the scholar who, he's a professor at Harvard University, a uh, good colleague of mine, uh, is the pr person with, uh, who uh, coined and has a beautiful book called The Weirdest People in the World that um that um 
lays all this out. I mean, it's just amazing when you when you think of it. Our entire conception of reality is um, it needs to be broadened, broadened out. And and um, so, uh, well, let's get to governance here and. Uh, two great challenges, as I, I'm sure you know. One is the challenge of coordination, even if everyone is willing. And then there's the challenge of conflicts of interest, where people actually are not on the same page. Uh, and so um, how does Wikipedia deal with these two great challenges of coordination and, um, and conflicts of interest? And uh, and where does your checklist come in? Because you are known for Risker's checklist. And oh, I also wanted to say, Anne, um, is there significance to usernames? The fact that people have a, a username which is different than their real name is that an important feature? People choose their their usernames for various reasons. At the time that I was joining Wikipedia, you know, registering my account in two thousand and five. Um, there had been some very negative encounters. Um, some women editors had been quite seriously harassed by a few people. And, you know, 2005 was a long time ago. Um, and I really had uh, have always been very cautious about what I put out there on the Internet about myself. Um and I felt it was a little bit risky to join Wikipedia, so I called myself Risker. Um, the interesting side effect is that uh, many people felt that my user, even today, still feel that my username sounds very masculine and are often surprised to find out that, you know, when they're on a video call, they're talking to somebody's mom. <laughs> Uh, so that's very interesting to me. But on the whole, I would say that it's not really, you know, people choose their usernames for reasons that make sense to them. We do have a fair number of people who edit under their real names. Uh, and many people who choose a username, but also link to their real names. So it's, it's very much a user choice thing. So, but what you've revealed here, Anne, is that uh, Wikipedia is not immune from all of the pathologies that we associate with the internet, such as trolling and harassment and, and, you know, predatory activities of various sorts, not to speak of subverting information. I mean, everything we talk about with fake news is something that's, uh, I mean, people must be, some people must be dying to get their spin on things into Wikipedia for that to become the reality of seen through the lens of Wikipedia. So we're back to coordination and, and conflict. Um, and so, uh, so back to you on, on how, how Wikipedia can, be, can, can, can accomplish these, these governance issues. We do a lot of things. Uh, and we have to keep in mind, this is a 20-year-old website. So we've learned a lot of things over time. And the lessons that we've learned on English Wikipedia are shared with our colleagues on Hungarian Wikipedia and Igbo Wikipedia and Bengali Wikisource and all of our other projects. So they have access to that information as well. And the software tools that we've developed, we're working on making sure that we are able to be, they're able to be flexible enough to help people. So there's a sharing of knowledge and, and experience that is useful, not just within our small, 
our own project, but out to our many other projects as well. Some of it can be transported and some of it can't. Some of it becomes part of the hardcore software that runs the entire Wikimedia uh, movement. And some of it is just very localized because it's a local problem that they're trying to address. So we have a lot of mitigation tools that we have developed over the years. And this is, this is where the coordination comes in. It is all self-coordinated. Um, people will say, hey, I can do this, or look for other people who are willing to work with them on, on something. So that's how our featured articles started developing, was that people who were interested in having the highest quality of work on our main page got together and they just said, you know, hey, let's let's establish some standards, let's help each other build those articles. And that's how that particular little area developed um, for a long time. And it's not as prevalent now because we have created, again, mainly by users, we've created software that we call bots. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen bots all over the internet doing various things. Uh, ours will quite often work on anti-vandalism. Uh, they'll automatically revert something that they've been programmed to Take that edit out to back it up. Uh, they don't formally delete anything. They just revert it to the previous version of the article. Now, that's part of this is this fossil record is basically nothing gets deleted. You have, you have an amazing, amazing fossil record of everything that ever gets done on Wikipedia, right? Yes. Wikipedia is quite a Akashic. <laughs> um, and, you know, there are, you know, a few exceptions to those rules, but generally speaking, yes, if it, you can go back to an article and read every single version of it all the way to the beginning in most cases. Just to clarify, you have bots that recognize vandalism. That's, uh, there's some algorithm that recognizes, and vandalism is somebody that just comes in and messes up an, uh, a piece just for the fun of it, or or uh, or what? Oh, it can be all kinds of things. Uh, you know, it could be a test edit. You know, somebody who tries to edit something, realizes they don't know what they did and saves instead of yeah, just, just backing just out. Junk. Degradation. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not malintent. It's just, it's what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's entropy, basically. Well, that's it exactly. And, you know, we have bots that will help with a lot of that. We also have something called a, a special screen that we call recent changes, which literally lists every single edit as it's happening. And people watch that recent changes list and will assess whether or not they need to look further at a specific edit to decide whether or not it's appropriate. And many of the editors who are working on Wikipedia today started off doing recent changes patrol. Uh, it's a very common entry point for for editors. Um, so people are invited to, do, you know, people just start doing these things. Uh, it's amazing the things that people will just sort of fall into, or they'll notice that somebody else is doing it and they'll say, hey, can I join you? Or they'll just start doing it too, and it just sort of becomes... How much apprenticeship is there? You say, hey, can I join you? So if you wanted to get into this, 
You know, you could do it solo, but you just said you could actually attach yourself to somebody and be an apprentice. Uh, hey, can I join you? Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, we do have some users who will act as mentors to new editors in various ways, whether it's, you know, doing actually doing some editing training uh, with people. We have uh, our courses and at what we call editathons or projects similar to that, where we help people to learn some of the background, some of the little tweaks and things that they can do to be able to, uh, to integrate themselves into the project. Uh, something as simple as how do you format a heading or how do you save your changes? What, what should you say in an edit summary? Those sorts of things. So it can be very basic or it can be very complex. Uh, for example, when we are dealing with some of our more high-level user rights, we'll want to actually provide a, a, a structured training course and a, a person practically to hold the hand of a new person in that area to walk them through the entire process because there it may be a complex process or a lot of steps that happen. And a lot of it just sort of you observe and you watch things happening as well. And you, this is a culture where trying something is accepted. If you try something, it can always be reverted back. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the great things, you know, it's safe to try. There's a, there's a phrase safe to try. Um, uh, and then you could always go back and you can do something else. So it's inherently evolutionary, in my way of thinking. Um, variation and selection, variation and selection in a way that's safe because you could always go back, which is not always true in the real world. But, but, uh, but in this case, it, um, it is. How, how soon, how soon when a person needs help, do they connect, a, get connected to a real person as opposed to something like a frequently asked question? disembodied, frequently asked questions list? They can actually put a help notice on their, their user talk page and, and someone will come and help them. It may take a little while. It may take a little while. I mean, like there aren't always people who specialize in helping people who are online or are available at that precise moment, but they're going to get an answer sooner or later. Uh, usually within 24 hours. Um, the other thing is that Wikipedia is is based on eventualism. Uh, not everything has to be done right this minute. There are exceptions to that uh, quite often when we're dealing with a breaking news story that is getting a lot of observation and review and everybody is coming to Wikipedia to see what's going on. Those articles are sort of... or areas are dealt with a little differently and they will be very, very highly watched and very carefully monitored and edited. But for, you know, the article on, I don't know, Madonna is, you know, there are always going to be some people who are watching it. If somebody asks a question on the talk page there, they'll get an answer. It may take a couple of days. Uh, but there are probably, I don't know, a thousand editors who have that on their watch list and will be able, will notice that a question was asked. 
So it takes a little while. So what happens if somebody's identified as a uh, kind of a bad actor that's not really operating in the interest of the of the community? What happens to that? What's the response? Over time, we have developed a lot of mitigation practices, and they sort of fall into two categories. One is to manage a problem with an article, and the other one is to manage a problem with an editor. And sometimes they interchange, they cross over. But uh, we have dispute resolution systems that are involved. Uh, There are some, what I would call bright lines that if people cross, they're not going to be allowed to continue. Uh, We will remove their, we will shut down their account. We will block their accounts. Um, Really harassing content, uh, very harm, you know, adding a lot of harmful information, undisclosed paid editing uh, will usually result in having an account blocked. Uh, You know, repeatedly damaging articles will get an account blocked. Uh, We do those sorts of things very routinely. How common is that? Does that happen all the time or just only infrequently? All the time. All the time. Uh, During the course of our interview today, which would be, what, an hour and a half, uh, we will probably block 50 editors or accounts. I won't be doing it personally, but it will happen. We also block uh, uh, the IP addresses of uh, VPNs and uh, similar processes, uh, similar internet access processes uh, as open proxies. And that is because so that we have a better control on being able to link users to each other um, and to be able to block those users, uh, we have found over the course of many, many years that most of our problem editors come from those sorts of editing or online processes. And we really have found that uh, it, it works to our advantage to just say, no, sorry, no VPNs. Uh, and then we wind up having to exempt people from those because we have certain countries where the way to get here the way to get to Wikipedia is through a VPN. It is the pretty much the only way. So we have a balancing act to do there too. Uh, bad players exist. We know that they exist. Uh, we are not really, on English Wikipedia, we're not very tolerant of bad players. Um, other projects, you know, have, have, have taken different approaches. Um, or have just, you know, done other things that prevent bad players from getting to them. Uh, for example, uh, some projects only allow people who are re- with registered accounts to edit. Um, it's something of an experiment, but it's very important to them. Or they have something called a flagged revisions process where anybody can edit, but the publicly viewing version of the article will remain with the last edit of a registered user until somebody reviews what the unregistered user has done first. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, so very interesting to uh, 
to me. Do you think of it or do, like an immune system? Um, I mean, <laughs> you and I have immune systems to help keep diseases away. And and uh, and uh, does anyone actually use that metaphor uh, that uh, Wikipedia needs an immune system for bad actors and bad uh, uh, at all? Oh yes, <laughs> uh, definitely, definitely. We've used that that metaphor. That's very specific metaphor. Uh, we will never be completely immune to it. No immune system is. No immune system is always vigilant, often challenged, sometimes overcome. That's the way our immune systems are. One of the major reasons for our success is keeping ourselves open, uh, making ourselves available, allowing ourselves to be edited, our, our projects to be edited by people whom whose motivations are completely unknown to us. And that's how we, how we exist. We need to have that input coming in all the time or else we just become, you know, some other site on the internet that falls out, falls out of, you know, falls out of its uh, currency and its, its usefulness. Absolutely. I mean, if, as a biologist, you know, I mean, there's so much, I mean, for an organism to exist at all with all of its amazing physiological processes is just amazing. And it's always being subject to disruptive forces, forces of entropy, forces of disruption, conflicts of interest, and so on. And there's a selection process that's required in order to maintain order. And in the absence of that process, then disorder results, and and and, um, and so it's so so interesting. I could talk with you all day, Anne, but but I I think that I want to get to make sure we cover two things. One is your checklist because I think that's part of the immune system is your checklist. So I'd like to know first of all the story of how you proposed it and how it became widely used and what it is, and then. I want to run through Eleanor Ostrom's core design principles and see how well they kind of fit what's evolved over there at Wikipedia. So, so, uh, so first your checklist. What is the story of your checklist? Risker's checklist is a checklist for software developers. It is not for editors. Uh, it's for, and it was developed because I, I had good connections with uh, the software developers from the Wikimedia Foundation. Uh, I count many of them amongst my friends. And they kept creating all kinds of neat bits of software, what we call extensions. Uh, that, And then they would ask me to test it because I was somebody who was willing to test new software. And I had all of these advanced permissions, so I knew what I was looking for because I needed to be able to... One of my positions was that I have to be able to use my advanced permissions for everything that's publicly viewable. And I kept running into the same problems over and over and over again. And I just got frustrated one day and just wrote the checklist. Uh, and then linked over to a couple of developers and said, is this of any use to you guys? And they said, oh, my God, somebody finally wrote this. <laughs> they were very thrilled to have it. Uh, and it was written from the experience, you know, the point of view of somebody who was experienced in running into 
new software that was applied to Wikipedia or one of the other projects that we couldn't take care of from the perspective of the community. Uh, we were not able to moderate it properly. Uh, and that's sort of a core principle is that the community has to be able to moderate it because the foundation has 500 staff. You know, they certainly are not, and they shouldn't be moderating content. And, you know, starting to tell people, these are the kinds of things that you, you will wind up with if you don't give us the moderation tools built right into the software. And, and so we gave them that, yeah, I wrote that checklist and then, you know, passed it on to a few people, asked their opinion. And uh, the head of engineering at the time uh, was somebody I was working with on something else. And I said, oh, take a look at this. Is this useful? And he said, I'm going to print this out and post it on everybody's desk so that they know when they're developing something. What are some of the items on the checklist? The checklist uh, says that everything that creates a publicly visible version of Wikipedia, you know, if it, if it can be seen by the public, then the editing community has to be able to moderate it. We have to be able to delete it. We have to be able to uh, edit it. We have to be able to find other things to do with it. We can should be able to revert it. Uh, we have to make sure that we can do something called uh, suppression, which is uh, removing even from the view of administrators certain content. And we do that with content such as, you know, very personal medical information or telephone numbers, uh, things like that, you know, very personal information normally. So privacy, I mean, I mean, there's so much, we haven't even gone there uh, uh, and the use of personal information and the protection of it. So, uh, so uh, actually maybe we should, but, but please continue with the checklist. So we talked about, we talk about that. And, and then we say, we have to be able to track those edits as well. So we needed, we need edits to show up in recent changes and we need them to show up in various tables that we would look at uh, and, you know, things like that. And that has actually become a major design principle. And even when they're writing in software that isn't going to directly go onto Wikipedia or isn't the base software for Wikipedia, uh, they do their very best to match up as closely as possible. Um, I've been working with uh, the group who is developing a project where we can put all our bots, sort of host all of our, our bots from all of the different projects and people can see what else each, each other has. And it's written on slightly different software, but they've used exactly the same principles as is it mentioned in the checklist. And we often find that if people are not following the checklist or are not using it for interpretation, that problems ensue. You have a do no harm clause. Talk, talk about that. This is really important. Um, and, and that in particular came from a very well-intentioned but extremely controversial software decision that was made, I don't know, around 2012 or so. Uh, a new editing software was being developed, uh, which we call uh, Visual Editor. And it was 
it was very early in its development. It, and a decision was made for whatever reasons to make it the primary editing focus for English Wikipedia and many other projects. And the problem was that it didn't work very well because it was very new software. And more importantly, about 30% of the edits that were made with this software were actually inserting information that was harmful, damaging somehow to the visual appeal of the article. It was taking things out that was supposed to be left in. If you tried to enter, you know, you would get all kinds of strange characters going on. And there was a very, it took a very long time and an awful lot of arguments with the Wikimedia Foundation who had put this software in to withdraw it. And we were actually at the point where we were about to do something that was could potentially have been very harmful to the project just to protect the project from this software. Uh, and they finally, you know, agreed that, geez, maybe this is not working as well as we thought. Uh, we, we actually call this the, the snowman example because one of the things that this software did was it would put little tiny snowman characters all over the place in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a word. And this wasn't even a character that we had on any of our character sets. So we had no idea where this was coming from. And it was, but it wasn't malicious. It was really, it wasn't, but it wasn't malicious, no, no. right? Not, not malicious no. in this case. That's it. Exactly. It was not malicious. They were trying to improve things very quickly, but the fact of the matter was it was just too much for this project for a project that gets, you know, thousands of edits a minute, you know, or thousands of, you know, tens of thousands in an hour. We couldn't have that many. We, we were busy fixing the mistakes constantly just of that. We couldn't build the encyclopedia because we were too busy cleaning up after, of after these projects. And, it was really, that was the doing no harm. That was definitely harming the project. Uh, and we learned, you know, both from the foundation end and from, and the software developer end and from the user end that we had to, f to be a lot more accepting of, you know, some changes, but at the same time, saying, you know what, it's okay if it doesn't work. Uh, and developers quite often have this idea of move fast and break things or um, we'll just upload it and then, you know, we can fix it from there. And, and the fact of the matter is this is a live site. It's being used by millions of people a day. You know, it's not and and, you know, it's an international resource. We have to try our best not to mess it up too badly. And we have other ways of doing a lot of those things. So backing it out and then working again, we have, you know, it's resulted in things that uh, what we call our development train, where they try a new version on a couple of projects that are willing to go through and do a lot of testing. And yeah, there's got to be something like A-B testing or whatever. I mean, you must have refined that to a fine art, I would hope. Yes. And, and you know, certainly this pro this particular problem uh, with with Visual Editor, which is now, and I will tell you quite honestly, is an excellent editing tool. 
you know, several years later and improvements later, and I use it all the time, uh, was something that was unusable when it was first there, but it's a whole different ball game now. It's a very different pro- project and a very different editing tool. So what does the do no harm clause of your check item of your checklist cause someone to do? Uh, basically to try to try to anticipate unforeseen consequences or something and just basically think about the systemic impact of what they're doing and then to and then to have that that view in mind. Is that what is that what what happens with the do no clause do no harm clause? That's part of it. You know, so taking care of things in advance, uh the slow progression of application of revised software or updated software. Uh, so we, they start on a couple of wikis where people, you know, those particular projects have said, yeah, we want to be testers. And, you know, they have people who actually, you know, spends a lot of time testing out all of the new changes to make sure that it'll work properly. And they also do something called, you know, revert. they will revert their changes as well. Uh, and it depends on the nature of the harm that's being done. So, uh, you know, if it's something that makes a site unreadable, obviously they have to revert a lot faster <laughs> because they need to have the site readable. That's sort of a primary or- organizational goal. Uh, if it does something that really harms something or makes something very uh, difficult to use, uneditable, for example, they will revert their software change, just as we would revert a bad edit uh, or a problem edit. And they've gotten a lot more willing to do that. And they've gotten a lot better at doing things step by step so that before it gets to English Wikipedia, they've fixed a lot of the problems before it gets to us. Uh, we're usually... We're usually the last site that they upload uh, software to. Uh, out of the hundreds that we have, the 800 or so that we have, and and that's simply because it's the most heavily used. And if something goes wrong, you want to take care of everything that you can possibly can before you hit your number one site, the one that's getting you know, all the hits and is bringing in the readers from around the world. Um, but as I say, you know, we're one of the 800 sites. So they've got a lot of sites where people are testing things and finding things out and letting software developers know if there's a problem. I asked if you use the immune system metaphor, and you said that you do very much. Are there any other organismic metaphors that you use to think about Wikipedia as some kind of superorganism with an anatomy and a physiology and a nervous system? Or is there more use of the kind of the organism metaphor uh, in addition to the immune system? I think probably one of the the metaphors that we use is uh, has to do with the levels of development. Uh, so as I say, you know, English Wikipedia and several of our fellow, fellow projects, Spanish, Italian, German, French, you know, that have been around for a long time and have large editor bases and a lot of articles and experience are sort of the mature projects. We continue to grow and develop, but, you know, they're fairly mature projects. And then there are sort of the middle-sized ones that are still developing and and still learning how to operate. Um, 
and quite often, you know, we try, we try where we can and through different channels to help those projects to grow and to support themselves to, to become the, the next level of mature projects. Okay. So there's a kind of a parental care sort of a thing. You know, sort of, you know, the, the very young and small organ, you know, organizations and projects get a lot of support, uh, in helping them to develop. We have actually have technically, we have an incubator project, which is used for very, very young projects where we only have three or four users in a particular language or a particular type of project. So they can get to a certain point before they can, they hit the major, you know, they get on the list of the official Wikipedias or the official wiki sources or whatever. So, you know, they have enough content to actually be usable. So we do have that sort of, you know, hierarchy of, of projects. Uh, and the key is trying to learn from each other and to learn from where others have been before. And it applies also to some of our social groups, uh, our chapters and our, our other affiliates, our user groups, where, you know, we have levels that they expect are expected to meet to come into certain opportunities, shall we say. Um, you know, an annual grant only goes to a chapter that has formal recognition and has, you know, uh, certain financial stability and so on. And, and special grants will go to user groups who are going to hold special projects. So financial resources, there's, you know, so much is based on volunteer, but now I've just heard that if, if you're doing a project, there might actually be some funding available, even if it's modest funding. And so tell us a little bit more about the kind of the financial resourcing of some of these projects. You know, we have to keep in mind that, you know, as I said, you know, it is volunteer base entirely. Uh, there are about around the world, about a thousand people who work for Wikimedia Foundation or one of our affiliated chapters or similar organizations uh, who are being paid a salary. I mean, if this is their job, they should be paid a proper salary. And that's fair. I think that's something that everybody would agree to. If you were, you know, being hired to do this for eight hours a day or whatever, you should get a proper salary. Uh, they probably don't get the biggest salaries in the world, but they do get salaries. Um, and whatever is required in their country for additional support, uh, depending on where they are. So, for the groups that actually hire people, uh, they have to have some kind of funding. Some of it is raised locally and some of it comes from the general pool of funding that is raised uh, on the Wikipedia and Wikimedia sites where, you know, we're hitting December 1st. We're about to see on English Wikipedia one of the biggest fundraising, you know, our biggest fundraising kick of the year. So you will see those. If you don't have a registered account, you're going to see that the next time or in the next few days uh, when you log in. And that's our one of our biggest fundraising processes. 
and that gets distributed then in this in this fashion. So then uh, throughout the system, basically, so you could apply. There's some application process, a grant application process, and things like that. Yes, and I mean the applications need to be related to Wikimedia, obviously. Uh, some aspect of our 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 motivation, our our mission. Uh, so, for example. There'll be money for prizes for our Wiki Loves Monuments competition. Will there be prizes for Photos of the Year competitions? Uh, Wiki Love Africa. Now a little more. <laughs> I do keep going. I, I can't help myself. So competitions you have competitions with prizes. Talk about that a little bit. A lot of these these are based on improving either the content of the of a project and it can quite often these these it quite often these uh competitions will be uh to create a, create or improve an article on various projects uh or in certain languages it may be illustrating uh f- articles about a certain topic. It could be, you know, taking photos and who has the nicest photos. It could be focusing on a particular type of uh, content that we want to improve. So, for example, uh, we may very well have a, a competition on writing articles about women scientists. Uh, we could have a competition on improving articles about Ghana. Let's take the first of those, writing articles on women scientists. So there's a competition. And uh, first of all, what are the prizes and how? what's the response? I mean, you get like dozens of articles, hundreds of articles. Is there a single winner? Um, is, is the prizes distributed? How many articles does it result in? These are all questions that rush to my mind. <laughs> well, a lot of it depends on how the individual competition would be built. So uh, right now we have a competition going on on English Wikipedia for improving uh, the opening paragraphs of articles. Because when you look on Google, quite often you will see the opening paragraph of a Wikipedia article. Um so we want to improve those, make sure that they're good and they're consistent. And what will happen is that the competition is how many did you do? And you're awarded a certain number of points. Who did you, how many did you do? How many, uh, bytes of information did you add? Uh, did you add a photo to the, uh, information box? You know, all of these. So there'll be various points assigned to various tasks and then you know the the competition runs for a certain period and then at the end of it you know people somebody will win and the prizes are usually relatively small uh they could be money towards buying a resource you know a book that you want or something like that or they could be a t you know t-shirts or or (laughs) stickers or 
Okay. You know, small time, small time. They're, it's, it's, they're it's, usually small time. I mean, like, it's unlikely that I don't think we've ever seen a prize that was worth more than $100 US. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get to Ostrom's core design principles. So to set the stage for our listeners, um, Eleanor Ostrom was a political scientist, and she became famous for studying the famous tragedy of the commons, the tendency of people to overuse natural resources. Uh, and that term, of course, was coined by the ecologist Garrett Hardin in an article published in Science Magazine in 1968. And the, the received wisdom was, was that the tragedy would always occur unless you privatize the resource or regulated it from in some kind of top-down fashion. And what Ostrom did, Lynn Ostrom, was actually study common pool resource groups around the world. And she showed that some of them were able to avoid the tragedy of the commons, to regulate, self-regulate their resources, but only if they implemented certain what she called core design principles. Uh, if they didn't implement these core design principles, the tragedy did, in fact, occur. And so she won the Nobel Prize in economics for that in 2009. And I was blessed to work with her um, uh, for three years prior to her death in 2012 to generalize the core design principles and to show that these principles are required basically for all forms of cooperation at all scales. And so, and so um, there's uh, just tremendous utility in these core design principles. So I'm going to list them and then to ask you um, how much they're kind of implemented, how relevant they are to, to Wikipedia. And some we've already covered. And so I think that as I list them, we'll see that we've already talked about these, but, but it's, uh, uh, very useful to bring them to, to, um, light. And so the first one, then the most important one is a shared identity and purpose, a strong sense of identity and purpose that, uh, you have to know that you're a part of this group that what it does is important, who's a member, um, and what they're supposed to do. So to what extent is a shared sense of identity and purpose uh, represented in, in Wikipedia? I think we've already talked about this a lot, but maybe you could just summarize that. I think, you know, this is probably the easiest one to answer because we actually have this. This is our mission statement. You know, we're here to share education to everybody in the world, you know, uh, and that's that's what we're here for. There's no question about it. It is why you're here, why you use it, why you participate in creating it. And if you can't track what you're doing to that, then you know you're probably not quite on the on. On the, on the, you know, people will say, if you're not doing it for that purpose, you know, maybe you don't need to be here. Uh, the companies who, you know, hire people to try and create or edit articles about them, you know, you know, those editors are told, you're not here for the right reason. You're going to be, you're not going to be here anymore. So if they don't have the, if they, if they don't have the, that philosophy, as they're coming in to participate, they're not tremendously welcome. Sometimes we will be able to turn people around, but 
not very, you know, that doesn't, that isn't our goal. Mostly they have to leave. Yeah. And so we'll actually get there. That's some of the other uh, principles. Number two, Anne, is uh, equitable distribution of contributions and and benefits. Not sustainable for some members of the group to get the benefits and others to do all the work. And and you can see how that would work in a common pool resource group if you're you know managing a forest or a lake or or something like that. Wikipedia, I think it's really interesting to reflect upon this because so much is done on a voluntary basis and people choose their level of effort. Uh, but uh, so what are your thoughts about this idea that the, 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 the benefits and the, and the workload and so on has to be fairly, fairly distributed? Uh, so how does that relate to Wikipedia? On Wik- you know, as you point out on Wikipedia, because individuals get to choose what they want to focus their time on, where they want to focus their time and how much time they want to put into the project whether it's a huge amount or it's tiny little bits, uh, the, the distribution works out pretty well. Uh, sometimes people are pressured to consider doing certain tasks or invited to think about doing certain tasks that may not look particularly appealing in the fir- you know in the first place, but quite often those tasks come with a fair amount of internal prestige, for example, uh, our arbitration committee on, on English Wikipedia is comes with a fair amount of prestige, but it's a really hard job and it takes, takes people away from a lot of the other things that they'd like to do uh, because they're basically dealing with disputes all the time of various nature, <laughs> of various kinds. And that can be, you know, hard. <laughs> Well, is there a free riding problem? Is there some sense in which you can be a slacker that you could kind of be part of the community and not doing much, but getting something from it despite not contributing? Is that, uh, is that, is there even a danger of that? Or is it kind of what you get so, so well aligned with what you give that, that slacking is not a, is not a problem? Slacking isn't really a problem because there's no requirement that people do a certain amount of work. Uh, we have, you know, how much, you know, respect and authority and responsibility you get is to your choosing. You know, there, there is, there is a correlation. If, you know, you're only making five edits a month, you are probably not going to get named administrator of the year, but (laughs) you're not going to build a feature article if you're doing that. But at the same time, those five edits may be really valuable. Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, we actually do that in other groups, basically. We contextualize it, basically. What are you in a position to give and what do you want from this? And then as long as we understand that, then that's fine. You know, we've, we basically, we've, we've, we've looked at it and we've agreed upon it. And thanks for the contribution to the degree that you can, that you can do. So I think that that is... Uh, um, um, very interesting. Okay, number three is fair and inclusive decision making. Not sustainable for some individuals to call the shots, and for others to have decisions made for them without their consent or participation. It does not have to be strict consensus, but there needs to be some sense in which decision making is fair and inclusive. How well does Wikipedia measure up on 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 that? 
almost everybody is permitted to participate in discussions about decisions uh, at any level, whether it's how we spend, spell this, how we spell Gaddafi's name, and we have a big discussion. <laughs> That's not a minor point. I have to tell you, <laughs> you know how we spell that that person's name and have a big discussion on a talk page and. As many people as want to participate in that discussion are going to participate. And then a decision gets made. It may be reviewed by somebody else, or it may be obvious as we go through what the answer is going to be. Uh, but decisions, just like any other organization, decisions are made by those who show up. Um, and to some extent, if you don't show up, you know, we, you're not going to get to change that decision, at least not right away, because we have to at least try the new decision. Yeah. So there has to be efficient. That's the great trade-off. The great trade-off with decision-making is basically participation and efficiency. But there's no closed doors, it sounds like. that. You know, it's up to you to show up, but uh, but um, there's you're not prevented from showing up. I mean, you have to have a certain access and status, I, I'm sure. Well, not even necessarily. Uh, with a few exceptions, there may be some times where we have decision-making processes that are closed off to unregistered users or closed off to people who don't have a certain number of edits. Um, but those edit numbers are usually low, like 10 edits in four days or something like that. Um, but yeah, that is the main limit is that once a decision is made, it's made. Uh, we don't want to be revisiting those decisions right away. There may be times where we have to change something very quickly, uh, where we don't have time to have an extensive discussion. Uh, but a lot of decisions are very simple and very straightforward. Uh, do we use ABC or NBC as the reference source? Hey, let's use both of them. Why not? You know, those sorts of things. Have you evolved a more deliberative procedure for the important decisions? I mean, is there some, some like, you know, almost like your checklist um, for, for the more important decisions? Yes, we have various processes for deciding whether or not somebody want, is suitable for being an administrator. Who's, administrators are people who have authority to block other users or to delete material. Uh, we have a process called request for administration and they have to, you know, the person, the candidate goes through a process where they're reviewed by members of the community and asked questions. And at the end of it, they are either granted or not granted administrator status. Uh, we have processed The arbitration committee that I've mentioned before is a dispute resolution body. Uh, it's formal decisions that go there can only be modified by a subsequent version by the arbitration committee. Those decisions are final. The community has to follow them. Uh, and they are user-based as opposed to content-based. They're based about on user behavior. Uh, we have a notice board called uh, uh, Administrator's Notice Board Incidents. 
or as we call it, Annie, uh, where people will come with issues or concerns and decisions will be made as to whether or not, you know, there's some disciplinary issue that needs to be dealt with. Uh, we have what we call request, request for comment, where we have a question, usually about article content or a policy content, uh, which will be open for a given length of time to have a discussion about, do we want to do A, B, C? What are the advantages and disadvantages of doing each of these things? And it's a community discussion. And then at the end of it, it's usually uh, solidified. Yeah. So a lot of structure there. You know, we do have those formal process. There's a lot of structures. Uh, and we use the structure that's right for the situation. Yeah, I can see that's highly, uh, highly evolved. Uh, number four, and uh, we've uh, we've commented on extensively monitoring agreed behaviors, monitoring agreed upon behaviors, and our entire con conversation has been shot through with monitoring. If you don't know what's happening, then forget about it. And so your checklist is all about monitoring, and and uh, and uh, so I'm not sure. Is there anything more you want to say about monitoring, or is it just like we've said it throughout this conversation? I think. You know, it is so inherent to, to the Wikipedia model that I don't think we have anything more to say at this stage. You know, sometimes monitoring becomes invasive and people feel like their, you know, big brother is watching or, or, um, or little brother is, is, is watching. Is their monitoring ever become problematic in the sense that there's like over monitoring, uh, or, or some kind of inappropriate monitoring? Sometimes we've run into situations where we have somebody who is who's developed a history of manifesting a certain kind of behavior. For example, adding material that violates copyright into articles, or similarly, you know, creating a whole series of articles from a boilerplate and and then not updating the information to match the title of the article or something like that. And these people can sometimes be very pr proliferate. And if one person is going through all those edits, you know, article by article, it can feel very harassing. And we have to try and find ways to balance that because, I mean, it, we have problem content and a problem editor, but we also don't want to create a sense of a harassment. So finding those that balance can be very tricky sometimes. Okay, next is uh, graduated responding to helpful and unhelpful behavior. Let me repeat that. Graduated responding to helpful and unhelpful behavior. We've already talked about positive uh, rewards for good behavior. Uh, now, when it comes to misbehavior, then the graduated part is important. I mean, according to Ostrom, it need not start out harsh. It starts out friendly. And I have to tell a story, uh, Anne. Her, her favorite example was the lobster gangs of Maine. And so the bays of Maine are, 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 are owned by groups of lobster fishermen. And uh, they're the only ones that have access to the bay. And if somebody else comes in with their lobster pots, you know it because those colorful bowies that, you know, are emblematic of the state of Maine, those actually identify the, the lobstermen. 
And so the lobstermen know when somebody's come in and is inappropriately fishing in their bay. And what's the first thing they do? And I'd love to tell the story. They tie a bow around the bowie. They tie a bow. And she used to laugh and say, these big burly lobstermen, you know, tying a bow around the, uh, the buoy. So that was the, that was the friendly part. But, um, but you know, if that guy didn't get out of there, that what would happen next? And so, and so cause starting out friendly, but with the capacity to escalate. And you've already said, and in this conversation, that escalation part in the case of Wikipedia happens pretty fast. So, you know, there's a point at which you don't mess, mess around. If somebody's misbehaving, they presumably they get some kind of warning. But, uh, but, uh, but if, if they don't respond, then it, it escalates pretty fast. Did I get that right from our, from our conversation? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll clarify this a little bit. We actually have a series of warnings. Uh, generally speaking, a new editor who is doing something comparatively minor, like, uh, you know, a little bit of vandalism or create doing minor things that change the content and somebody has to fix it. Uh, we'll get four warnings before they get blocked up to four warnings. Um, you know, somebody who is doing something really bad, you know, like coming on, creating an article saying, you know, Professor Sloan is blah, de, blah, de, blah. And there are certain things that we will simply block immediately. Uh, accusations of pedophilia, <laughs> those sorts of things, you know, really, really bad stuff is going to get an immediate block. You know, we're not going to mess around with a warning there. We're going to go straight to the, straight to the, uh, the heavy duty stuff. But if it's somebody who just doesn't understand that we have British spellings and English and Canadian spellings and American spellings in different articles. And they don't know that, you know, you don't change the British spelling on the article about Buckingham Palace. <laughs> they're just going to get a minor warning. Okay. <laughs> you know, they're just going to get a minor warning. And we're going oh, to work, okay. but it's there. sensitive. It sounds very sensitive, basically. That uh, if something goes wrong, then you know it's kind of like that. That something, uh, and, something and sometimes it's just you know somebody will. We won't use our official warning templates. We'll just drop a, a nice little message, you know, a handwritten message Sorry, from Christ. somebody <laughs> saying, "Hi, welcome to Wikipedia. We noticed that you did this, and we actually have welcome messages, and we actually have warnings that have a welcome message built in." Okay. Okay. So, you got that done. Yeah. This is perfect. You know, this because, is perfect. you know, you know, we want to make sure that people who are there in good faith are not going to get scared off just because, you know, they changed maneuver to maneuver. Yeah. Okay. Number six is fast and fair conflict resolution. And we've also talked quite a bit about resolving conflicts. An important point there is to have a kind of a respect for both parties because in a dispute, most parties think they have a point of view. So say a little bit more, if you like, or maybe we've already covered it, on uh, on conflict resolution mechanisms. Most In most of our conflict resolution processes, we have a relative, there's a relative degree of fairness. Uh, 
it's not always going to be perfectly fair. And again, it depends on who shows up to have that conversation and that dispute and participate in that dispute. Um, I can't say that all of our dispute resolution is fast. Some of it is intentionally not fast uh, when we're, you know, and, and some of it doesn't necessarily work out the way people expect. Um, we often jokingly say that, you know, the disputes that the arbitration committee is working on are interpersonal disputes in most cases. But at the end of the day, the primary customer is the encyclopedia as opposed to the people. Uh, so they have to do, make a decision that is based on maintaining the encyclopedia, not making the people happy. It won't always work that way. And I think by fast, I think I, I think the meaning of that is fast to initiate. So, so things don't fester. And then how long it takes. Initiating can go pretty quickly. Yeah. So number seven is authority to self govern because if members of a group don't have the elbow room to manage their own affairs, then all bets are off if they're being bossed around from the outside. And, uh, and I think, um, it seems from everything we've said and the whole nature of Wikipedia is that it is have authority to govern itself or, or, or perhaps not. I don't know. Maybe there's, aspects of the larger world that that um, that impinge upon it so so we're now shifting basically with with the seventh and eighth design principles we're shifting from internal processes within the group to the relationship between the group and other groups in a multi-group population of some sort so so speak to that authority to self-govern is that uh, uh, how does wikipedia fare there and as you mentioned, you know, this is something that goes a little bit outside of the individual groups. Now, as I've mentioned before, we have a lot of different projects. We have about 800 of them. We also have, I think, 120 or so uh, what we call affiliates. They're user groups or chapters in geographically specific regions. Uh, and... Overall, each of those groups self-manages. Uh, the affiliates, the projects themselves, they self-manage. They decide where they're going to focus their attention. They decide who, who, who their uh, primary uh, consumer is going to be or who, who their client is to some extent. But there can come a point where the larger group, the movement group, as we call, you know, or the, the larger overarching community of all the projects and all the affiliates may have to say, you're, you're losing the plot here, guys. You're not following the rules. The overall, you know, there are certain limited rules that you're expected to follow. You, you can't have, you know, neo-Nazis running one of the sites. It's that simple. We're not going to allow it. You know, we, we're not going to grant this particular group authority because they, we already know they're infiltrated by your government. You know, those sorts of things. Um, and, it's really hard within our movement to get to that point, but there are, there are times where we've definitely had to do it, where projects have been closed uh, because of inappropriateness, where they've been 
you know, where users have had to be removed from them uh, because of their behavior, even though, you know, the, because the project itself can't handle or manage their problem, their issues. And sometimes, you know, projects, there has to be a way for a project to step out of itself and say, hey, we've got a really big problem and we need some help here. Uh, so that can be an issue too. Uh, I mean, I certainly, when a, in a large project that has input coming in from a lot of parts of the different, of the world, uh, those are not commonly seen. Those kinds of issues are not commonly seen. But for a smaller project or a, you know, a medium sized project where almost all of the editing is done in a very small geographic area, uh, it, it can be prone to capture. Uh, and we have to be able to prevent that from happening. So on the whole, yes, our, our projects are self-governing, uh, but there are some guardrails. Yeah, well, that actually gets to, uh, that actually gets to the last uh, design principle, uh, collaborative relationships with other groups. And, uh, you know, the Catholics have this principle of subsidiarity that the lower level unit has authority until there's some problem up the line, and then that requires some top-down attention. Do you actually think about subsidiarity at all, or, or do you have the equivalent? Uh, do you ever use that term? Or We had just gone through a big process right now uh, of looking at our long-term strategy for the entire Wikimedia movement, uh, where we're and one of the very core principles that we have included in our strategic proposals is subsidiarity. Uh, we've had very extensive discussions about it, and it is pretty widely agreed that uh, subsidiarity is really important and really valuable for us, uh, and that it's actually one of the, our better features. That's great. And so, so basically, it looks like um, this eighth core design, basically governing intergroup relations within Wikipedia. You probably, it sounds like you do pretty well on that. But now if we think of Wikipedia in a still larger ecosystem, which is, of course, a market capitalist ecosystem, well, you're worldwide. So Wikipedia is a attempting to survive in every kind of political background, right? So, uh, so it's almost like a, uh, an almost like a natural experiment that you have this amazing social organization and it's attempting to grow in every kind of political environment, authoritarian, democratic, capitalistic, social democratic, socialist. Um, and uh, so um, talk about the, the kind of the ecosystem at that level where, where Wikipedia is, is, a, is an agent within this still larger ecosystem, which is much less in its control. I mean, beyond its its control. So what are the, some of the challenges of Wikipedia surviving and thriving in these very different socio-political, cultural environments? There is no doubt that these are challenges. Uh, at various times, uh, Wikipedia has been blocked in entire countries. Uh, there was a very long blockade by... Uh, Turkey. China has blocked Wikipedia on and off intermittently for almost as long as I've been editing. Uh, 
other countries do it. Uh, other countries will narrow what they block to specific articles if they can, um, or have threatened to block. Uh, we've had countries who have threatened to cause harm to various members of our editing community or part our Wikimedia community, our local communities there. Uh, and we have to be sensitive to protecting those individuals and not putting them in positions where, you know, this is a real danger for them. Uh, so, for example, we have certain countries where people are not allowed to hold, people who are residents of certain countries are not allowed to, allowed to hold certain kinds of permissions so that they cannot be seized by the government and coerced into uh, abusing those permissions. Uh, and this is not necessarily always authoritarian countries. It happened to somebody from France, where somebody in the French military wanted an article taken down. And you know, a French admin Wikipedia administrator was at, was taken was arrest, arrested and told to delete this. So this is not wow. just, no, you know, no. authoritarian regimes. Well, and this authoritarian can happen regimes in the Western countries. Well, yeah, yeah, well, Western exactly. countries can become authoritarian, and, and so uh, so there's so there's that uh, which is frightening enough, but. Then there's the problem of commercialization. Just basically, in a in a highly capitalist country, uh, what are the dangers uh, from that end of things? In a you know uh, kind of a laissez-faire market economy, uh, what what are the dangers on that side? There are two two dangers, and the first one is people using our content without giving proper um, proper credit. You know, it would be like plagiarism. Basically, it is possible to plagiarize Wikipedia, as crazy as it sounds, uh, because we have a certain licensing requirement that says if you're going to use our content, you've got to tell it, say that you're using our content. I, you've got to attribute it. And uh, I, I know very well that, you know, one article that I worked on quite extensively was practically quoted verbatim in a number of news media sources afterwards. Uh, and when I say verbatim, I mean like literally they picked up the paragraph and they put it right into their articles. Uh, <laughs> this wasn't some college student. This was, this was some new No, show. this was, you know, supposedly reliable source publication. So that was not, you know, that does still happen. Uh, but we've got, there's an awful lot more recognition from media that this is a bad thing because it's started happening to them too. So they realize that they've got to start doing this. Uh, for example, we used to have a lot of problems with images coming from Wikimedia Commons being used in news reports without credit. But I'll bet you, you couldn't open up a news, a news site right now without finding on their front page someplace, a Wikimedia Commons uh, image that is actually attributed to Wikimedia Commons. It may not be right down to the very per photographer, but it is attributed to Wikimedia Commons. So we're getting there. That's improving. Um, the other end, of course, is companies trying 
to weasel their way into articles. Um, some companies behave quite legitimately and they'll, you know, have somebody, you know, Joe Blow PR of ABC Corporation with, you know, a username that says this and his user page says, I work for such and such, you know, ABC Corporation. And they'll comment on the talk page of the article and they'll say, we have some some information here that you might want to include in the article or we're a little bit concerned about such and such. And then they, they have a discussion with the community and it's then worked out. But they're uh, responsive. They're responsible, basically. They're, they're agents of the company. They're being they're responsible. agents. Of, yeah. Yeah. That's it. They're being responsible. There are some companies who are not behaving that responsibly. They tend, uh, not not all the time, but they tend to try and hire out of certain sites and get people, you know, hire people to do this stuff. And that's hard to do uh, because the quality quite often doesn't come up to standards and, and the article will be deleted because it's junk, you know, as far as we're concerned, or it's a, a really, really bad article. Uh, so a lot of it just, just, you know, we'll take one look at it. We'll say that's spam, it's junk and it's gone. And the, quite often the account will get blocked at the same time. Um, and sometimes there's middle grounds where, you know, they're just adding little bits and pieces or where somebody who may or may not be hired uh, is, is trying to influence an article in a certain direction. And we don't know whether or not they're paid to do it. It may simply be that, you know, they really love that particular product and they want to support it or that particular company. Uh, but we do have ways of dealing with that. Now, on a big project, it's not too hard to catch those things. Uh, and different projects have had a few different ways of dealing with that. Uh, they will, you know, in, on German Wikipedia, they've actually experimented with uh, having an official account for some companies to work on, to do that kind of editing, as opposed to having a, a specific individual, but giving, having accounts for the company that are only allowed to edit talk pages. They're actually prevented from editing anything else. Special kind of account. Uh, I don't know how well it's worked because I haven't really talked to my German colleagues about that, but I know other projects have had issues with this. And for small projects, it's it can be very challenging to try and keep that kind of stuff out, especially, you know, some of our projects may only have 15 or 20 regular editors. Oh, I can easily see how it would become, um, how it would become uh, overwhelming. What do you do? This might be, this might be my final question, Anne, um, that we have now back to um, uh, weird societies and problems with colonialism and, and where, you know, the people providing content are just not of the cultures that they're writing about. Um, and so a recognition of that problem uh, and then doing something about it. Um, uh, how does, uh, how does Wikipedia, first of all, I believe it has acknowledged that um, and is making an effort, but how do you go about that? Where basically you're, you're challenging the authority structure and then you're, and then you're trying to uh, create a, a more of a balance in just who counts as the authority on a given topic. Exactly. And 
it is one of our biggest challenges. Uh, definitely, we recognize that this is a challenge. Uh, and it's one of those challenges that cannot just be resolved by one or two processes or, you know, by, you know, doing everything at once. A lot of this is very piecemeal, but at the same time, it, it tries to respond to the individual communities that we're trying to encourage to participate. Uh, a good example here is that uh, in the province of Quebec here in Canada, uh, we have several editors from Wikimedia Canada, a recognized uh, chapter, who work with the Inuit of James Bay to help them to, who are helping them to develop their native language, Wikipedia, and Wiktionary, dictionary, and, and all of these projects. Uh, you know, they're providing a lot of the support, uh, ha the how-to, the training of how to use a Wikipedia, uh, the kinds of ki things that will help them with sourcing. Um, and it's very difficult sometimes for some, uh, some communities, both in, you know, especially indigenous communities that may not have a written language, uh, to participate in some of these. So we're looking at is, are there some kinds of addition, different projects that are not Wikipedias that we can capture a lot of this knowledge in? Because I mean, they, we want Wikipedias to be a certain thing, but can we capture a lot of this knowledge in a different way? I mean, I, can you imagine trying to capture all of the legends? To us, you know, this is, this is incredible cultural information. We'd love to do this. So we want, we're trying to looking at that. Yeah, but it would be an oral history. But, you know, you've reminded me, uh, Anne, that uh, that's what anthropologists have done forever, ever since there's been a field of anthropology, is people have gone and they've learned enough about the culture very respectfully. Um, they've translated the culture to their own leadership to the best of their ability. And then they provided um, uh, uh, as much opportunity as possible for indigenous for the people of their culture that they're studying to speak in their own voice. And now what we're doing is we're adding a uh, technological dimension to that, which might be Wikipedia, that's primarily print, uh, or it could be uh, for which you need a written language, which might not exist in, in some cases. And if not, then then something else, an oral archive or or images or or, you know, so on and so forth, in which basically there's there's um, the, the the core design principles, basically the kind of respect and 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 moral equality that we hope for, and uh, so so uh, I think that's that's quite optimistic, and to see that uh, Wikipedia is is uh, playing a role in that is um, is um, is wonderful, but that's doable, I think, with with appropriate sensitivity. So, Anne, uh, this project is part of. Um, series of conversations uh, that are built around the concept of the noosphere by uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a kind of a thinking uh, brain-like entity which uh, uh, can expand to the entire globe. Uh, do you think at all and your, your uh, brethren there at uh, Wikipedia about uh, Wikipedia as being something like the memory of a global brain or, or something like that? Is that a part of the conversation? Well, certainly that's part of our, 
our objective, our mission is is to be one of the information centers of the world, the globe. Uh, we aren't all the way there yet. We continue to develop. Uh, we know that we have some parts that are well-developed and some parts that are just in their infancy. But yes, this is part of our goal. So we do see ourselves as part of the information base that the world will use. So Anne, Wikipedia stands in such contrast to other major social media sites like Facebook and, and so on. Um, are there lessons to be learned there and uh, that uh, how uh, other social media sites that are so rampant and so pathological can, um, can learn from, from Wikipedia? We're fundamentally different from them. They operate under a profit motive. Somebody's making a lot of money from them. So their motivation is about money, not information exchange. So they have a completely different motivation. Uh, I can't think of a social media site that isn't for profit. And I think the reason that Wikipedia works over and over and is, is more balanced than most of these sites is that there's, we have no motivation to keep you from reading the article on Senkaku Islands, which, you know, would be motivating if we were a Chinese company because we don't want you to know that Senkaku Islands exist. Uh, those sorts of things. Uh, we don't have a motivation to show you articles about the heroes of some war because we're going to generate more advertising that way. We don't advertise. Uh, and that is probably the biggest change and the biggest difference is that because it's volunteer driven and it's not monetarily focused and it's not trying to make money for anybody, it's just trying to keep itself running like the Internet Archive. It doesn't much, you know, all those externalities that make web websites like Facebook, like Twitter, like Parler, whatever they're calling themselves now, uh, operate just isn't a motivation for us. Right. And it's interesting, uh, Anne, that you mentioned in your reply, much more than financial motivation. So there's a profit motive, but there's also might be a political motive. There might be an ideological motive, um, all kinds of motives that basically tear away at the truth. And so, uh, but so you have a motive. Wikipedia has a motive. It's a motive to provide accurate information. That's its motive. And it's, uh, it goes to say that unless that's your motive, unless that's your motive, then, um, don't expect any other motive to lead to a repository of accurate information. You get what you, you get what you aim for. And so, uh, and so, uh, uh, that's, I think, is the fundamental message there. Um, we have to have generally pro-social motives. In this case, accurate information. And, and if you don't have a pro-social target, then there's no invisible hand that's going to get you there. So, so that, that resonates very deeply with me. Um, for all things pro-social, uh, and um, accurate information is, is one of those pro-social things. So um, that's awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science of the Noosphere. 
We greatly appreciate your interest and support. To learn more, visit us at humanenergy.io.